The cultural imprint of George Miller's 1981 dystopian opus, Mad Max 2, The Roadware, has been thoroughly debated and chronicled. No other movie and franchise can be regarded as fully necessary to the evolution and proliferation of the post-apocalyptic wasteland action genre. This movie is the godhead from whence all of that sprang. It's punk, it's violent, it's action-packed, testosterone-fueled, yet forward-thinking, masterfully shot, and directed. It's a glimpse into the fears of the era of an uncertain future, but its style and narrative is timeless. It continues to influence storytellers, filmmakers, weirdos, transgressives, and artists of all types. It certainly influenced us here on this podcast. That's why we are proud to break it all down for you on this week's episode of Midnight Flicks. dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am your host, Adam Walker, and joining me on this cinematic expedition, as always, is Patrick Mitchell. Hello, Patrick. Hello. Sorry sorry about the technical difficulties that uh, set us back a little bit today, but here we are, nonetheless. Luckily for our viewers, they they would know nary the wiser. Our ear viewers. (laughs) are yes to their ear holes uh everything is on the up and up they don't know we've been sitting here for over an hour yeah they they don't (laughs) they 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 didn't get a you know they hadn't been a fly on the wall watching me flail around frustrated here in my my little uh studio room trying to save that for the youtube channel we don't have yeah i'll have to recreate it though I'll have to reenact even, it because even fucking better. Set it to like the Keystone Cops music or like the Benny Hill theme. Okay. Well, today we're talking about the road, the road, the road warrior. 
the road warrior road warrior or yeah. just mad max 2 if it's difficult <laughs> mad max 2 but in the u.s it was billed as the road warrior because originally nobody knew who the fuck mad max was Mm. Yeah. I and I that. and the copy that I watched, I watched my VHS copy. I guess let me back up and say that for me personally, this episode already has been fraught with frustration. Really? Yeah, going back to my situation I have here at home is I have a lot of shit. I've collected a lot of things. And so much so that when I move from place to place and I carry my shit with me, not all every place isn't always accommodating. Actually, no place is accommodating for me being able to actually set up my collection of things in a manner that is uh, efficient to get to. And I collect more. The thing is I get rid of a lot of stuff and then I collect more stuff. And so my house that I live in now, thankfully living in Seattle, I am fortunate to live in a house, which is, let me tell you, that is not an easy thing to do. Um, if you live in I've Seattle, I've never lived in an apartment in my life. Oh, you haven't? No. And I never will. Well, yeah, you were <laughs> fortunate. You were, you were fortunate. I, I've lived in a few and I've lived in some really small apartments. Um, so out here, if you're lucky to get a house, then you're lucky because they're not easy to come by cheaply. We so happen that and we have had a, a pretty sweet deal here. But anyways, point being, I have so much shit that some of my stuff is still boxed up and I can't get to it easily. Anyways, I had sworn. You, you were talking about Mad Max? At some- <laughs> getting to it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyways, this is my roundabout way of talking about Mad Max and, and, and the road warrior. I was like, okay, I know I have the road warrior on VHS. I, I distinctly remember the box, the art, art in my mind. So my VHS situation is already like a pain in the ass where like things are triple stacked and they are not in any sort of alphabetical order because it doesn't, it, it doesn't even make any sense to put them in alphabetical order the way they are. They're just, they're on like a couple shelves and they're triple stacked. And then I have more in boxes. So I start going through my collection and I get all the way to the bottom of it. No fucking roadware. God damn it. Where is it at? So go, go back to my reserve supply in my boxes, dig through these boxes. Finally, after digging through several boxes, I find my copy of roadware. And, and I was able to watch it because it's, <laughs> it's not streaming. I, I on thought it. you were going to say like it was called Mad Max 2 or like that's why you couldn't find it because you were looking at the R's, but it was in the M's. No, I <laughs> wish it was, it was called Road Warrior. No. Anyway, so my copy that I finally found in the bottom of these the stack of boxes that I have is the Road Warrior which is what it was called in the U S because nobody knew that it was anything about Mad Max at the time. The road warrior was the movie that catapulted the franchise into international stardom. 
and 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 then on it was able to be billed internationally or at least in the u.s as as mad max 2 in fact i'm gonna do a little pre-trivia here um when the of them because nobody knew who the fuck he was oh weird which is a little bit of irony which i'll get to later about mel gibson that maybe you didn't know my partner didn't know as well and she was aghast when i told her this but we'll get to that wow Um, okay so um yes very frustrating i finally found it watched it it's not streaming on anything that we found immediately i didn't want to fucking look for a torrent of it I just wanted to watch my VHS copy of it. And I wanted to use my brand new microphone for this episode. And that's been thwarted. Have you seen any good movies, Pat? (laughs) Lately? Well, let's let's see. (laughs) I I rewatched True Lies last night. I saw Um, that. That is a real fucking piece of shit. I fucking hate that movie. I think I've, I've come to the conclusion that I do not like that movie. I thought I rewatched it in the hopes that I was um, mistaken, uh, but no, it, it it just fucking sucks. I well, I notoriously I don't know if I would say notoriously, um, but I I really hate James Cameron a whole bunch. Oh, okay, um, wow. I fucking can't stand him. But then I read, uh, instead of talking about True Lies, uh, I'm going to segue into a James Cameron story that made me like James Cameron. Um, Did you know that Guillermo del Toro's father was kidnapped in Guadalajara? No. In like 1997? No, I had no idea. So Guillermo del Toro's dad was kidnapped and held at ransom back in like 1997. And uh, I think at one point when they found out that it was Guillermo del Toro's father or, or whatever, the ransom skyrocketed to a, 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 just a, a crazy amount. Uh, from I think they had crossed paths with when he was making Kronos. I think that's when he when Guillermo del Toro first met uh, Cameron. In any regard, uh, Cameron. Uh, immediately upon finding this out, sent uh, Guillermo del Toro a million dollars to help with, to help offset uh, the cost of some of the, of some of the ransom money. And Guillermo del Toro is still a up and coming independent filmmaker at the time. Yeah. So I was gonna say. he's a fucking millionaire yet. Right. Um, so I read that first of all, that story is a wackadoo. Uh, and they, he, the father was returned safely. They never found out who kidnapped him. Uh, and they never got any of the money back. <laughs> so I read that and I was like, all right, Jimmy C, Jimmy C, I'll give you another chance. And I'll, I'll start with uh, true lies. And I really, the, the Bill Paxton, the middle of that movie where Bill Paxton comes in for about 10 minutes is just absolutely delightful. I, I absolutely, he, it's one of his best performances, yeah. especially comedically. It's so good. He's just, he's like doing severin quotes the whole time it is it is so good um but yeah the rest of the movie it's like the two and a half hour uh it, well it, it was i guess it was inspired by a french comedy called like la totale or something like that which was like a french action comedy he was yeah. inspired to do 
but like true lies doesn't ever come off like very comedic it, it's weird it, it's like almost takes itself too seriously so it's like not very actiony and it's not very comedic it's just kind of everything at once and, and nothing at once all at the same time if you know what i mean so, so that's bill, what i watch so bill paxton was the jewel in the turd shining out he really as as he oftentimes is and i love i mean obviously i love arnie i the 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 horse chasing the the motorcycle through the hotel is absolutely fucking exquisite one of the best chase scenes ever um outside of maybe this movie that we're gonna talk about but right <laughs> it's a great it's a great chase sequence but yeah i watched true lies and it was a two and a half hour stinker but that movie's um, that long i don't remember it being that long wow yeah it, it is two and a half hours uh the bill paxton shit although he's only in it for 10 minutes it takes a it takes a right turn with the jamie lee curtis cheating angle and you are stuck in the weird cheating angle for what feels like an hour of that movie of him figuring it out and him getting jamie lee curtis to go undercover it, it's a whole thing um yeah, it's it's not very good. What have you seen? Of course, I put some almonds in my mouth right as you were finishing. Well, I've never seen that. What me? What a man eat almonds? Never <laughs> seen. This is the first time I've seen a man eat almonds. But hot diggity! I've never seen that snuff film. What it's have I seen? Like, Gacy no. showed the people. <laughs> uh, yeah, Gacy's victims. The last thing they saw before they died was a man was eating, guy alm- eating almonds. <laughs> Slowly. Well, what have I seen? You know, off the mic last time we talked about In Fabric, which we both mm-hmm. liked. You know, we had some minor, minor criticisms, criticisms with it. Apparently, Internet baby generation people are like just foaming at the mouth about it, which they seem to be doing with quite a few newer horror movies. That I like uh, like Mandy, where I'm like, this movie fucking rules. This is this has got like a lot of stuff that I like all thrown together very well. Unlike I.E. The Void. And then I look like you know, whatever, like internet comments is like the cesspool of, of it's the detrius of like all the worst things about humanity, you know, right there distilled. But then I see like everybody crying about it. And it's always like, it's always the same shit. It's like, where's the story? I don't understand. Uh, pretentious crap. So anything that has any sort of artful flair to it, it's like automatically these fucking bots or trolls or Russians or whatever the fuck they are get on there to fucking destroy it. Like, go fuck yourselves. I hate you. Fuck the internet. Anyways. See, I don't even go, you speak the shit out. Like, I don't even care. Like, I don't like go out and look for in fabric, uh, just, boards or I mean, I go, no, I mean, it's just IMDB <laughs> or, or rotten tomatoes. I just kind of like scroll no, down. Like, yeah. Fuck all that shit. Why are you reading that? You can give yourself a, a fucking aneurysm. Well, because part of it is entertainment. Part of it is just me to, I just want to. Oh, you like it. Oh, well, then that's another thing. Yeah, but also because on the one hand, you know, part of me, I do things in my life. Like I do like outreach and community stuff and activist stuff. 
where, you know, part of me, like, I want to help. I want to do good things for, you know, my community and what I think is like things that people should be doing. But then there's also this misanthropic part of me that I'm just like, just nuke it from space. And like, when I see things like that, it like, I think it, it scratches that itch from like, yeah, fuck people. I hate them. They suck. Oh, okay. <laughs> you You're know, basically Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> but Oscar the Grouch, but I help. Yeah, I guess if you put it in the in in terms of Oscar the Grouch was was on Sesame Street, which was good for people, and was like, yes, uh, and, but he was the misanthrope of Sesame Street. Yeah, but like I I, I also try and like you know like I said, there, I'm a complex man. At all, I'm saying is like yes. There's a part, I'm, there's a part of me that has hope and there's a part of me that tries to like get people to fight the good fight. But then there's, when I see things on the internet, like I'm like, oh, I hate the internet and it brings out the worst in people. That's all I'm trying to say. But also there's entertaining things about it. Like when I read, I read the, the, the comments and, and things for uh, Avengers in game. Was it in game? Yeah. It was one of those where like people were just like, so much crying and gnashing of teeth and ah and all right anyways i'm going on a real fucking wide tangent here yes i saw that i saw i watched drop dead fred which was also fucking fucked up and weird in its own different way i've seen a bunch of things i can't remember so in fabric was good the platform was good we talked about that yeah we I both like, loved in fabric but yeah yeah we both liked the platform that was good. Yeah, that too, yeah. Um, I'm sure there's some other things, but we'll move on. Because this has been, this is already like went, went way fucking left field. Um, so we just want to talk about the Road Warrior? Sure, we can get right into it. So the Road Warrior, just to give it a, a brief synopsis, uh, in a post-apocalyptic wasteland world, uh, this mysterious drifter encounters a tribal community that is living in this compound where they refine oil and they, and so they're able to make gasoline and they are descended upon by this gang of bandits slash marauders. I guess actually the technical name uh, for the group is the marauders. They're actually the marauders. Uh, led by the humongous, who is this hockey mask wearing beast of a man who is actually also quite eloquent at the same time. So <laughs> he's uh, so they're led by this gang that is trying to take uh, to to capture the uh, the refinery and the wacky hijinks ensue once the the mysterious drifter enters into the scene. Uh, AKA Max, Max Rot Rotkansky, Rot Rodanasky. How, how do you pronounce his? I always I, fuck I, up. It. I have never. I've always seen it and never even attempted to say it aloud. Rotstansky, Rot Rotanasky, and and so um, nailed it. Yes, thank you. Um, so basically, <laughs> this 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 battle ensues where they need to either fend off the marauders to to maintain the safety of their their compound or they have to essentially capitulate to the marauders and then flee 
from the compound. So that's basically the uh, the gist of whether what, what what's happening. So. Um, I didn't look for any sort of reviews. I just assumed like from what I knew that this was pretty much critically lauded as a movie. Um, nobody really had anything bad to say about it that I know of. I don't know if you did you see anything to the contrary? No, no, I did not. Um, I, I came to the same conclusion. Yeah, I mean, this has been from the moment it was released. Um a pretty cherished movie. This is even considered by the cast and crew, uh, George Miller, Mel Gibson, et cetera, et cetera, as being one of their favorite movies that they've ever been involved with. Certainly uh, for most people of the Mad Max mythology, this is their favorite. I would say present company included, right? Um, I don't know. After watching this I, if i were to be a total fucking nerd about this i would say that fury road the chrome edition of fury road i think that's what they call it it's like the black and white version of, oh, of okay. fury road yeah is like technically speaking my favorite thing he's ever done fury road is is uh, an insane achievement given how much time went by between uh Thunderdome and Fury Road. I mean, I, I never even expected another Mad Max movie, let alone for it to be that fucking good. But yeah, th- this would be tied with Fury Road or or just below it. I absolutely love this movie. And it's definitely better than the first one. And it's definitely better than Thunderdome. Thunderdome takes when they when he follows the children out into like the, the desert into that like lost land of the children or whatever the fuck. Right. <laughs> that that whole back half of Thunderdome sucks, but everything up until when he escapes the Thunderdome is so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Thunderdome is is great for about a half. Uh so long-winded answer. Yeah, th- this is this is up there. I might put Fury Road right ahead of it though. Yeah, I mean I like all of them. Uh, I think I have a, 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 I have more of a sentimental attachment to Beyond the Thunderdome because I actually saw it when it was first released. I went to the drive-in with my parents and saw it. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, so just this whole franchise and its aesthetic. It is an incredible franchise. I mean, if you're talking about, at the, at the time, a trilogy forever, but now it's, you know, the four movies. Um, it's right up there. I get, give me four better movies in a row. <laughs> I, I that that have you know any any sort of series of movies that have better four four bangers. I I don't even know other than uh, Rocky one through four is better than these four. But <laughs> you would, would, this is wait this wait is fucking up there. Back back up. Did you just say that Rocky one through four is better than these? Rocky one through four is the great is the greatest. If he never made five, it would be the greatest series of movies ever made. Yes. Rocky one through four is, is, is my, are my favorite movies ever. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to disagree. Like I'm right there with you. Those are four of my favorite movies of all time as well. Would I say that I like them more than these? Ah, uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Well, and when you consider that that Fury Road was made so much later than the first three and Rocky one through four were all made, you know, within consecutively within, you know, you know, that era, the 80s, 
yeah, I don't know. Um, that's a, that's a whole nother discussion that we can have, but I do love both, both parts of the franchise. Definitely for sure. Um, yeah. And that's, that's a, that's a good argument to make that they're, they're, they're very close in terms of like, if you want to analyze four movies in a row of a franchise that are all like just killer and stand the test of time. Um, you know, yeah, it's hard to say. Um, but anyways, yeah, this movie definitely in my consciousness has, has had a big impact, had, had, had a very seminal impact on me in terms of, you know, as a kid, like eventually getting into punk and metal and uh, certain fashion like this really planted the seeds along with horror movies and and comic books. This is this series definitely is is very very firmly uh implanted in my consciousness uh and and informing who i became as a person so that being said let's just go in because i feel like we we've definitely gotten pretty long-winded up to this point let's go and move into the good the bad and the questionable starting right at the top with the good And the, for me, this isn't going to be another one of those movies where it's going to be pretty lopsided. It's pretty much all good. There's really nothing bad about it other than like just me making jokes about bad aspects of it in terms of actual um, any sort of technical aspects or any sort of, uh, you know, any sort of approaches to the acting or the direction. There's really nothing bad about it. Um, the good right at the top. I love the, pro I love the intro, the prologue, the way it sets up this whole drama, this mythology of Max being narrated by what would later be, you know, found out to be the, the feral child as an adult and him looking back upon this. And it creates that epic sort of aspect to this much the same as star Wars and, you know, when you read about George Miller's, uh, what kind of influences led him to creating this, um, it's also like George Lucas in the sense that they were influenced by Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey, um, the hero with a thousand faces and Westerns and Kurosawa and Kurosawa where, you know, it is, yes, it's talking about essentially, a, a wayward hero um, trying to somehow find some purpose after a, a very, very significant dramatic loss in his life and really, you know, trying to find their humanity again after basically they've been drained of their humanity and their soul. And this is what this story is about is kind of like, finding that in the process of um, doing heroic deeds, doing deeds that are dangerous and could potentially be fatal. Uh, yeah. So like there's this, there's this, this theme of 
well, this person basically has nothing left to live for, but they're willing to risk everything also for somebody else, you know, because I guess in, in their minds, it doesn't really matter whether they live or die. Uh, they just kind of keep going on and on and on. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I really like that um, set up to it. Um, and yeah, of course the, the costume design, the, the use of, <laughs> again, we talked about this a little, we talked about it with Waterworld where this is, uh, you know, the case where it wasn't done very well, but this is a well, uh, where we have a case of somebody taking junk and, uh, garbage essentially, and, uh, a variety of different things and being able to kind of meld them together. And what is like a very cool aesthetic and style with this, it's just like sports, sports gear and bondage and fetish gear and, and trash all kind of sewn together to create the aesthetic of, um, the denizens of this world. Um, so right off the top, those are some of my favorite things. Um, Anything you want to talk about right now? Oh boy! I know where to start. Much like, much like yourself, uh, it's all good. It's all good. This this is one of the one of the, my favorite movies. Um, I guess some very specific things to to kind of hammer out real quick. Uh, the Australian cattle dog is the very definition of a good boy. He's like the best <laughs> doggo of yep. all time. And just like the perfect post-apocalyptic sidekick. I, I fucking love that. That cattle dog didn't deserve to die for sure. Uh, like you said, all the various leather daddy bondage costumes shouldn't work, but they totally work. I, that's a testament to George Miller making that shit work. Um, Lord humongous. I love that he has his own hype man. Like that, that fucking wiener guys, like the flavor flav, uh, <laughs> the toady. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love, I love, uh, I love when he introduces him as the warrior of the wasteland, the Ayatollah of rock and roll, which uh, Chris Jericho uh, took from this movie. Um, oh. He calls himself the Ayatollah of rock and roll. Um, I love that the apocalypse is here. It's queer. Get used to it. Like this is like a super posy queer vibe movie. I've not done any research or read any essays identifying this as like a, a, a it's not a I wouldn't say it's specifically a queer movie but it is it is a posi queer movie absolutely lots of, lots of very positive aesthetics being uh thrown to the LGBT community in this movie as well as how the film portrays feminism and strong independent female characters and George Miller does that throughout the entire series you have Fur uh, furiosa and uh in Fury Road, you've got um, you've got Tina Turner in in right. Thunderdome, um, and you've got the the female warrior. I'm not sure if she's even has a name, but the female warrior in this movie. Um, I I love all of that. Um, I have a major crush on that girl with the white headband and the upright like Cindy Lou Who ponytail thing. I don't know what's going on with that hair. The, <laughs> yeah, the hair is just going to stick it straight up or whatever the lady that eventually becomes the gyro operators gal pal. Yeah. And I, I, I will get pissed about that. Uh, when we go into later sections, um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she is attractive. Yeah, I she's super cute. Love her. 
She's Charlotte, adorable. Charlotte, Charlotte made the comment that she's the most Australian woman she's ever seen. <laughs> That's probably right. I could just, she, she's almost like not in character. Yeah. <laughs> she wasn't told she was in a movie. Right. Um, the child in this yeah. does enough to be likable without bordering on annoying, like yes. annoying tag along little kid vibes. I, I like Enola in Waterworld. I hate, I hate to, that we're just comparing and contrasting, but uh, that's that's a good comparison. It, whereas Enola was super annoying in Waterworld, this kid is very independent and and not, it doesn't it doesn't ever fucking annoy me that he's doing stuff. Yeah. Um, that's another testament to George Miller, just making him like a great character. Um, and then if we were to get into any sort of uh, film nerdy aspects, I, I love George Miller, like speeding up the frame rates during the chase sequences. That's like a, that's a very signature George Miller thing that he uses in all of the Mad Max movies. Um, it gives it like this cartoony, almost like comic book stylization to it. I, I absolutely love it. It works. It hasn't aged poorly the overall nature of like, he's like a very fast paced editor of his movies. And he does like a very frenetic kind of storytelling It just George Miller's aesthetic and his thumbprint of who he is as a director is, is so ingrained in this movie that you could just pick a George Miller movie out by the way it looks and feels, which is always like the mark of, of an expert director. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, that's also in my good, um, the, the camera direction, um, the cinematography, uh, it really makes you feel like when, you know, the, the vehicles are crashing and things like that, like it gives you this feeling that you're actually in the driver's seat in a lot of ways. And, you know, of course with these movies that we really like a lot that we talk about, I feel like they all have this signature cin- cinematography to them and direction that really, um, it really like was groundbreaking at the time and really established a certain aesthetic that was utilized later on. So yeah, I totally agree. I wanted to go back and talk about with the, uh, um, the, the queer aspect of it or the, the, this aspect of, you know, having a sort of discussion about different, different gender roles and things like that, that I didn't know this until uh, this time that I watched it, that one of the, uh, the gangs actually has a name and they're called the gay boy berserkers. And, and, and you humong- say that. So apparently it's when in the early part of the film, when <clears throat> Max is on the, on the Hill, kind of scoping out the scene before he goes down there that you can kind of hear off screen humongous yelling at his, his various groups his his gang minions that he yells gay boy berserkers. He's kind of like getting them all like lined up in formation to, to do what they need to do. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah. So that aspect of it is super cool, you know, especially also like, uh, you know, when you, when you think about Wes and his, what you would think is his partner. And I found out later on after researching that that's kind of an big ambiguity about the movie is, you know, I just always took it as a given that Wes is, uh, the golden youth, they call him that that's his partner, but apparently, um, there's multiple interpretations to that as well. So, 
seems like all of the higher ups have just like kind of a weird gay boy slave <laughs> thing right. going on. I, I, they're, they're more like, uh, you know, on, on coming up through the ranks and are given some one of the uh, higher up to pair up with and do their bidding. It seems like, but yeah, it's very ambiguous, which I yeah. think is it actually serves the movie better that way. Yeah. Because you also get the impression that Wes is sort of, um, is humongous's bottom essentially. <laughs> um, yeah. It's he, like he, everybody has, yeah. Everybody has a top that they answered to in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And that, you know, further ties into the leather daddy BDSM subculture that it's tapping into is there is this tough, very masculine, very like, you know, um, muscular aspect to that culture, you know, that, you know, there, there is of course the flamboyant aspect and what would be considered the more just, you know, outwardly kind of gay aspect, but then there's this very, very, you know, <laughs> tough gang aspect to it as well. So, yeah. Yeah. In that sense, this movie was very like woke and very forward thinking. So yeah, in general, um, yeah. Also for me, I really like the feral kid. I love the, uh, the feral kids boomerang his, his, oh, yeah. his, uh, um, you know, dangerous boomerang and, uh, how he's able to, you know, pull one over on the gang where they think like, Oh, you know, like with the toady, he's just like, I'll just grab this, you know, and take it from him. And it's like, Nope, it actually has like this, you know, sharp edge to it that it can yeah, just I love when it, that, that the fingers coming off and then everyone laughs at him. I love that part. Yeah. That's because so yeah, the, the, the toady is just like a, a goober, you know, like, you know, he's, he's just like, he's tolerated, but like, you know, if I think that's just like the general, like kind of gang mentality though. It's like, they're like, you know, whatever, you know, if, if somebody dies or somebody gets hurt, it's just like, fuck them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, matter. they all work yeah. together, but they're also kind of all for one, one for all kind of thing. Um, so the main centerpiece to talk about, of course, with this movie is the chase. And really, when you think about it, you know, that's what this movie. Kind of, I mean, there's a couple different chases, but as with Fury Road, there is the chase to talk about. And this is like one of the most spectacular chases ever, you know, represented in a movie. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit and how it's just, it's, it's not an ancillary aspect of it. Like that is like what you're trying to get to. That is the, that is the big moment in this movie is this, um, just all out fucking crazy chase scene. So I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, it's, <laughs> It, it, at the heart, the heart of the movie really is. It's basically a, a a road movie, chase movie. Like it's it's very much so. It has all those aspects to it. It just happens to be set in in the apocalypse. And I and I think George Miller, being Australian himself, actually George Miller is Greek, so I'm going to uh, claim him for our team, uh, the Greek team. But um, he is Australian. He's Australian. He like. I don't know if sure if he was born in Australia, but he was Australian raised by Greek parents in Australia. Okay. Uh, but he uses the backdrop beautifully of like the vast expanse of the outback. And he knows his, 
he knows the landscape so well, obviously from having been raised there, but it is such a, it's, it's such a perfect backdrop to all of this fucking mayhem. Cause it's all happening in a vast expanse of, of seemingly nothing. It's just like a, it's a wasteland in and of itself, almost the, the post-apocalyptic nature of it almost doesn't matter because the, the outback is, is that way regardless of the situation. Right. Yeah. Um, but he uses it to his advantage and it's, it's a great backdrop to all of the chase sequences that are going on. And like I said, he likes to, I almost feel like he, he, uh, films a lot of the collisions in a slower pace and does that like sped up frame rate aspect to it where everything is like kind of, uh, you see cars about to hit and then the car speeds up like at a dramatic fashion. That's like faster than anything could be. filmed, yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then that's how the collision happens. He loves fucking doing that. And I, it makes it for so much of a more exciting experience, not to mention all of the choreographed shit that is, constantly going on of people like hopping onto the back and the tops of other vehicles and getting like thrown the fuck off and like, like getting shot through the windshield and like Mel Gibson shooting through the top of the cab of the, like there's so much going on, let alone all of these vehicles are also like personally handcrafted and different. They're all like, you know, independently made to be, different from one another so it, everything you see is has its own like mechanics and and kind of weird aspect to it it's 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 phenomenal it's yeah. definitely the, the greatest car chase sequences ever put in film right and that's i want to talk about that too one of my favorite things about it are the vehicles for sure and i i know i kind of talked about it a little bit with streets of fire i know you said you're like not really you don't really give a shit about cars or anything but i have this I have this interest in cars myself. I'm not like a gearhead nerd about it, but I do have an appreciation for muscle cars and what would be high octane sort of vehicles and, you know, souped up engines and things like that. And cars from different eras, specifically um, from this period of the, of the 1950s to 1970, early 1970s. Um, I, I do have an appreciation for that. And I really, really love the interceptor in this movie in and in mm, mad max yeah. the the cop car um i actually was fantasizing i was like man if i was like one of those like collector types that had just like you know uh like just this in this you know just what would be like an endless well of 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 finances to throw into my my interests uh i would totally want to buy the interceptor because I fucking Absolutely. love that car. That car is, is so tight. So fucking cool. And so much. That's the thing. Uh, uh, you know, the, the interceptor itself is a character. And so when the interceptor blows up, when it gets derailed, derailed, off-roaded and blows up, like I'm genuinely upset. <laughs> like I'm super bummed out that that car like gets fucked up in this movie. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a character. It's almost like a character dying. It's like R2D2 of this movie. Cause it's got the built in like a detonation system to it. It's, yeah. it's almost, it almost functions as, yeah. As like a live, a lived in, uh, living breathing kind of character in the movie totally and you know the fact that it survives into the this movie and it's it's integral to max's character like you know that is his home that is not only is his vehicle it's his home 
It's how he survives the wasteland. Um, you know, and the fact that it doesn't show up in beyond the Thunderdome is, is also what I consider would be, uh, a negative to that movie, even though I do love that movie. So, um, also what I wanted to say, as far as the chase goes, this is one of the greatest diversion techniques ever in a movie. Um, I love the the switcheroo that is pulled in this movie. And I love that Max doesn't know. Right. And that's what makes it so great and effective is, you know, I, I, I feel like, yeah, um, the, uh, the denizens of the refinery, that was where they were being pretty smart and calculating. They probably figured like, we're not going to be able to get this dude into this deal if we just, you know, kind of, you know, set him up for this diversion. You know, he has to be invested in the idea that there's fuel in this. And to me, when it crashes and the sand kind of pours out, if you want to get like metaphorical about this, to me, that's a great metaphor because at the end of it, like all of these people have died. The, the, all these marauders have died chasing what they, they've, think is fuel and i feel like you know especially considering that this movie was created you know at the tail end of of the 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 opec fuel crisis in the 70s you know it kind of again is a metaphor for like chasing what is essentially you know what is what are we chasing this 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 nothingness essentially like we're dying for nothing so you know and i feel like that was the fact that like fury road was released in 2012 or whatever, you know, right. You know, when the Iraq war was happening and, um, when that was still, you know, very much in people's collective consciousness as being, uh, you know, another like unnecessary endless war for oil, for gas, you know, like, why are we doing this? What, you know, there, there's alternatives that we could seek that don't create so much, chaos and bloodshed and destruction in the world you know so i like that whole idea that it's kind of encapsulated in that chase and that diversion so um we can go on and on and on with the good um we can i feel like unless you got anything else to talk about we can just go into the bad and just wrap that up pretty yeah, quickly I, I we've touched upon the most most of the Aspects that I love uh, the yeah. most. Oh, well, the one, I forgot the one other thing. I did forget one. Uh, I like that every Mad Max movie kind of has like a different villain or final boss character. That's yeah. so fucking cool. It makes them all stand out. You got Toe Cutter from the right. original, uh, Lord Humongous in this one, Master Blaster in the in uh, Beyond Thunderdome, and in Immortan Joe in uh, Fury Road. Greetings from the Humongous, the Lord Humongous, the warrior of the wasteland, the Ayatollah of Rock and Roller. What do you have to say about this movie that you feel was bad, if there is anything, really? Well, like I alluded to earlier, it really pisses me off that the fucking Nerdlinger gyro captain becomes the de facto leader in the end and knowing that my girl with that wide headband is 
shacking up with him makes me want to fucking puke. I absolutely hate that guy. He's got like rapey, <laughs> rapey fucking uh, uh, insidious motive g- guy written all over him. Like he is that he's the, the suitor in um, uh, what the fuck the two episodes ago. Uh, I don't know why it's eluding me right now. Um, oh, he's Colin in Repulsion. He's Colin. I'm starting to think of his name. He's Colin in Repulsion. Basically, I fucking I hate that he becomes the captain, and and knowing that that she's with him uh, really really upsets me. Yeah. <laughs> so I only have a couple things on my bad, and that is one of them. Um, is talking about him. It's not so much his character. Like I don't mind his character. Um, there is that creeper aspect to him. But I know he's also there to provide some sort of comic relief and levity to the movie once again, which speaks to Miller as as a director and a writer because he creates that foil to Mad Max as being like, you know, like Mad Max is a straight man to this guy being like, you know, the, the bumbling goober, essentially. But what I wanted to say specifically, <laughs> it always stands out for me with this movie with that guy is his teeth. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, you, you know, that, that's got to be makeup. My God, I hope. No, it is. yeah, totally, totally. Like the guy um, Bruce Spence, who we'll talk about more. I, I'll talk about more. He he doesn't like. He's not a grody, disgusting he's not a meth <laughs> meth out one. No, no. As far as I know, he's a pretty like you know he's a pretty clean cut. Just he's a you know um, a, a theater actor. Like so. <laughs> He's not just like some scumbag that they just threw into this. Um, but yeah, like the thing with this movie is obviously it's it's in this world where hygiene and cleanliness has to be compromised due to the situation. But he's the only one where really it's like you're like, Ugh, like, you know, those teeth, bad. those teeth really stand out. But again, I think that's great. Like that's, that's what makes well, us care. Boo is going to be kissing on him. Oh my God. I'm fucking kill myself. You don't know that though. Like it's implied that she's like, she's definitely she like is wrapped around him in the final shot when they're, when they're driving away, she's like front and center arms around him. Like it is a, it is more than implied. Well, I would also say, <laughs> If you want to talk about, I guess I can, I could go, I could, this is kind of a stretch is what I'm trying to say is if we're talking talk about the, the progressiveness of this is like, well, in this world, like, you know, maybe looks don't matter as much because what the fuck, <laughs> you know, you just, you, you know, just everybody just needs to, to find somebody that they can tolerate and fuck them. And that'd be fine if he wasn't like rapey. <laughs> That, I wouldn't have a yeah. problem with that. You, you have the scene specifically where he's trying to steal her away in the cover of under the cover of night, and she just chooses to stay. Yeah. And that whole scene is very like un, unnerving. It paints it him in a weird light. No, he's um, a, he's a, if you take that out, then he's rather the, the yeah, he's rather innocent. Well. Yes. So there's a creepy aspect to him. And, you know, of course, he has a, a, repri- a reprise in uh, Beyond the Thunderdome. Yes. He actually yeah. has he's given a name in that. And so I guess I'd have to go back and watch it and really like um, see how he acts in that movie, because I can't really remember to fully, you know, assess whether he's just a, whether he's a creep or whether he's just he's a, you know, he's definitely a lot more 
placated in he maybe domesticated is a better word. I don't know. Right. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's not so much the foil as he is, uh, uh, a protagonist in, in thunder by Thunderdome. He's all, all in all a good guy. You yeah. I would say. Also, I wanted to, cause I was trying to remember her name, but, uh, uh, Tina Turner's character name in beyond the Thunderdome is, is anti entity. I, I, for the life of me, couldn't fucking remember. She's got a really oh, cool God, name. That, so that's, that doesn't even ring a bell. Yeah. Um, so aside from that, the only other thing that like repelled me or like I thought was like bad or gross is watching uh, Max eat the dog food. <laughs> I was like, <"Bleh." laughs> yeah, that'd be fucking gross. Um, but other than that, yeah, I mean, this movie's fucking rad. There's nothing bad about it. You know, there's no there's no criticism again about the the te- any technical aspect or or directorial or aesthetic choices. This movie's fucking rules. So, anyways, uh, questions, questionable questions. Do you have do you have any questions? I had I had some questions. I had one right up uh, off the top, but then after I read uh, a little bit more about the movie, it was answered. So I guess uh, I can. Just... I do have some. Go ahead. Well, I'll just say like right off the top when I was like thinking about it, I was like, when theoretically is this supposed to take place? And of course, from our perspective, you would think, wow, this is like way like with Waterworld, it was like, you know, 2500, 2500, yeah. 2500 AD. So <laughs> this movie was supposed to theoretically take place in the 90s. <laughs> so. <laughs> We're all, we're all right. George Miller did that. Was George Miller really trying to uh, have a commentary as to the state of the world and how cataclysmic events are, are, you know, kind of just propelling forward at a, at an unretainable rate. Yeah. Because I feel like it makes sense from his standpoint. And a lot of people um, that were making art or music um, that were, that had that, that apocalyptic bend to it at the time, because, you know, in the eighties, you know, especially the early eighties, it was at the, at the nexus of the oil crisis, you know, the Reagan era had just begun. We had the cold war. We had the star Wars program, which I don't know if that was, that came a little bit later, but so, you know, we had, you know, we had the looming specter of nuclear warfare, of course, you know, mutually assured destruction through the U S and um, the Soviet union going to war, which that reminded me, Oh fuck a movie. I did see that. I didn't mention. Uh, I saw this movie called threads, which is just fucking bananas and super like bleak. That was about um, nuclear Holocaust essentially. So anyways, all these things were looming at the time. So I think to someone like George Miller, he was probably like, yeah, we ain't got much longer. Like (laughs) the U S and the Soviet union is going to blow. It's going to blow up the whole fucking world, you know, through some like, you know, catastrophic big dick waving. And this is what we're going to see here in basically um, a decade or two. So anyways, like I said, so that got answered Um, questions you have. Yeah, let's uh let me see. While you were talking, I was just thinking about wh- how weird it was that 80s were uh were the time for like Australia had like a big uh resurgence in the 80s, like Crocodile Dundee, I guess that's like later 80s. Uh like that Midnight Oil Band, weren't they Australian? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Men at Work, isn't Men at Work Australian? Yeah, also ACDC. 
Yeah. Well, so, my God. Yeah, there was a, there was a boom in, um, I think like uh, what they uh, the, it's it's referred to as, and Antipodean. Uh, there was a resurgence. Oh, in, that, has a, that has a fucking term for it. Yeah, Antipodean is is a reference to what would be considered Australian culture. So wow. yes, there was uh, some Aust- Australia philia going on in the eighties for sure. My God, past the Vegemite. Pass the Vegemite, mate. Hey, pass, pass the Forsters and the Vegemite there, bloke. Well, it wouldn't be bloke. Mate, bloke. <laughs> hey, you cunt. Hey, you cunt. Wait. Now, no, that's like Jack the Ripper. <laughs> well, <laughs> like cunt? No, just that Cockney, like, that. that just that, like, <laughs> accent was. Yeah, I know. That's terrible. Um, How can we dance when our earth is turning? Also, for me, um, one of my favorite bands of all time is the ba- uh, is the Birthday Party and the Bad Seeds. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, also Australian. A lot of good shit oh, Nick, came from Australia. Cave, yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Also, I will say there has been a resurgence in Australian punk recently. So a lot good. of good. Well, I like of, to hear that. A lot of cool Australian bands coming from. Uh, from from uh, that region now, yeah. Well, of course, Australian nice. bands coming from Australia. Um, wow, who would have thunk it? Uh, we, okay, so we totally got off track. So questions, yes. Yeah. So question. oh Wes, yeah, Wes has Max dead to rights not once but twice in this movie. It's actually kind of infuriating. He fails to act on it either time. Once at the very beginning of the film, uh, when Max is clearly just fucking like out on his ass collecting gas on in these pans and he lets him go. Uh, one could say that, you know, there was some, some weird mutual respect going on or I, I don't, I don't know to live, to fight another day, maybe was what Wes was thinking. Uh, but to, after the car detonator goes off to not investigate even a little bit, is yeah. uh is a little weird on Wes's part. Um yeah, I thought that was interesting. He's just like, oh it's all over here. It's all done. Let's there's nothing dead. Okay. They're all dead. Well, nothing more up. to see. Yeah. The feral child who does nothing but growl and snarl throughout the movie somehow grows up to be an incredibly well spoken individual. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's so that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and that goes back to what I was talking about with um Lord Humongous. Oh, there was another good that I wanted to talk about, actually, which I'll get into the trivia uh, real quick. There's the montage, the torture montage, where all the all the montages are great. The opening the, one, the uh, how we got here was great. Right. And we'll talk about with the quotes how, you know, a movie is only as good as how good the bad guy is. And the bad guy always has the best lines. And of course, with this movie, Humongous has these these epic speeches. Uh, humongous is the perfect demagogue in a lot of ways because humongous is not only very brutal and he rules with an iron fist, but he's also very gentle and tender. Like when he deals with, with grabs Wes after he's crying, he's like, call my dogs of war. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, yes. You know, it's like, we've all lost someone we love, but he's, he's actually very, very, um, like I said, he seems cultured almost. And uh, what I wanted to say is like that montage where he's just like 
he's genuflecting around and pointing and like, you know, while like the, the bikes are like, you know, doing posse circles and like one of the members of the, of the, of the tribe of the, of the refinery tribe are just being tortured on a cross. I just, I love that whole scene. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's weird. Like, um, these feral people like the feral kid and, and humongous, uh, apparently are very literate at, uh, at some point in their lives. They learn how to like talk very well. So yeah, that's, that's well, one thing I thought. Are you saying that Lord Humongous was also like, like how does the feral child grow up to be like fucking Rudyard Kipling or whatever? <laughs> well, <laughs> because, because he gets assimilated into what is essentially, you know, it's a, it's a tribe that's, that's, that has, you know, is civilized you know, they, they retain aspects of what was the world before, which is they can, you know, speak to each other in full sentences. And, you know, they, they, you know, their vocabulary hasn't been hindered in any way. It's, it's not like, you know, I'll refer again to the walking dead with the trash people who in five years, apparently they can't speak English. They've just created this hodgepodge sort of pigeon English. That's like, you know, with, where they don't have like articles in their sentences and, and syntax where, you know, good people, you know, good trash, at, you know, gas, get whatever, you know what I'm saying? So like, um, I think like with the I pharaoh, do, but he's like, he's fucking, he barks at the gyro captain. Like he doesn't have any, he doesn't know any words whatsoever. And he's lived with this tribe for, I don't I mean, I don't know how long, but it's, he hasn't picked up a word and we're supposed to believe that he grows up to like literally be like, like a philosopher. Well, like but that's, that's where I think you're wrong though. Uh, I don't think it's, it's implied that he lives with the, tr- with the tribe. He's an outlier. He's a, he's just this feral kid. That's been like living in the outback and surviving off of, you know, whatever means. And then he comes upon what's happening. And he sees, you know, this, this battle that's ensuing. And so he just takes part in it. And then he develops an affinity through, uh, with Max through their interactions. I don't think he's actually a member of that group. Uh, he eventually gets adopted when they leave. So. That might be. But, but it, that's, that doesn't <laughs> explain why he becomes well-read. You don't think, you don't think like, let's say theoretically, he's doing that narration when he's a 40 year old that in that time he, he can't learn to read. I don't buy that, man. No, because I don't think that's prioritized in this assless chaps <laughs> wasteland. <laughs> I'm not even sure that I'm pretty sure there's no fucking books anywhere either. Fair but, enough. I, I digress. I, I will disagree with you. I think that in, in, you know, even in that world, um, there's enough oral, uh, teaching that can be, um, well, there's some world teaching. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying that like it could be handed down to him how to actually read and write. I, I feel like there's, there's, they're still able to do that. I mean, there's plenty of examples of that within tribal culture. If you, you know, study the anthropology, uh, the anthropological history of, of tribal cultures throughout the world, you know, they're able to be very, um, you know, they have complicated uh, languages and, and oral sort of, uh, you know, oral traditions that have been handed down for thousands of years. That's all I'm saying. Like, I think it's possible anyways. Um, 
So I disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> That's more than fine. Um, my question, what do you, th- what do the marauders do all day uh, when they're not marauding? What do they do? You get kind of a glimpse of this when um, the tent is pulled off of two of them, you know, in, in, in coitus, in flagrant delicto. Mid-coitus, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, that's one thing you could say that they're, that the, you know, they fuck. But, like, when you just, like, think about it, like, and this goes with the tribe, too. What are they doing all day? What do no, you suppose? I mean, they've got to be bored. I mean, they're just dicking around, I'm sure. Yeah. So like they don't, but they, they don't have, do they, do they have any sort of games that they do? Is there, are they, are they, you know, what do they do? But yeah, apparently that's all they do is they just, they just, you know, they find different groups or, or people to, to exploit for, for gasoline. And then they just drive. Is that, I mean, I definitely think they're just, they're um, all constantly on the lookout for resources and, scanning their their general territory to try to expand and and assimilate other you know other groups but yeah it it would be a it'd be a boring fucking existence yeah it's very obviously very bleak um i don't know i i guess i've never really understood this even though i've watched this movies time and time again maybe you can answer this for me so and that ending, um, the the third chapter or the third act, where the the tanker is driving off to divert the marauders from the refinery tribe, and they're going a, a separate way. Is it really established, like w- where they're going to meet? I don't really know. Like, cause they're going in opposite directions. So it's just kind of implied that, that Max is just going to keep driving with the oil that they need to get the, the marauders away from them and, and hopefully kill them all off. Do you know, like, uh, is it ever established? I mean, yeah, other than when the, the one guy shows him like the pamphlets, he's like, we're going to paradise, mate. Like he shows him those weird, like uh, tourist pamphlets. Like that's the only thing we get in terms of where they're possibly going, which I, I you know, without knowing anything, especially about uh, the Australian, you know, the, the landscape and, where is what i yeah i have no idea yeah because in that last chase scene max has you know in tow with him to assist him to get the marauders um dispatched the people from the tribe so there's the warrior woman and there's a mechanic and then there's one other guy and then there's the leader which is uh papagallo so you know you you think like okay they're gonna follow along with him and in hopes that they all survive, they will be able to direct him to a, a meeting point, but they all die. So it's just like, you know, you don't, you're not really like, you know, given any indication as to where they're ultimately supposed to, to um, find like an, another place to, to set up camp. So I don't know. I never figured that out. And then of course it's, you know, with the with the uh, reveal of the of the fact that it was all a diversion, 
then it's like all for naught. It's like, well, then it doesn't matter. They're just going off, fucking off wherever they want to with their canisters of oil. And, you know, Max is there with his dick in his hand. So true. Um, that was my other question was, why do you think Max doesn't, doesn't care to go with the group or be with the group at all? Well, I just, again, that refers to just the fact that he's a loner, Dottie. He's a loner. Yeah. He's, he's a loner. He's a rebel. And, you know, he, he had in terms of a family and a nucleus of what provided all of his emotional and affectionate needs, he had it. He invested it all in his, his, his wife and his child and they're gone. And he's that, that will never be replaced. So even though it's kind of like hinted at that, like there might be something that could happen with him and the warrior woman, it's just, it's never going to be a thing that comes to any sort of fruition. And of course that is reprised again um, with um, Fury road, where you would think that um, he'd go off with Furiosa, but he doesn't, he ends up, you know, just well, George Miller, I think intentionally, I, I, I like that the, that remains unexplored because the, the female characters remain uh, independent and stronger because of that decision rather than just another like love interest or just there for, yeah, a romantic angle. They stand as independently strong characters by not exploring that, which right. is good. Right. Totally. Um, uh, I had one other question and then if you have any more, go ahead and, and um, spill them. But the other question I had was there is a point where the gyro and the gyro operator, his, his flying device gets shot completely out of the sky crashes. But then at the very end, when the chase has ended, he is able to still ride up to max to me, I, I just thought, okay, well, that thing's just completely destroyed. And he somehow survives unscathed, even though, like, he falls a pretty, you know, fair amount of feet from the sky. I would be like, this dude is fucked. Like, his legs are broken. His his little fucking flying toy is, is busted. But, nope, he's still there, able to putz around and, and you I know. just took it that he was knocked off balance i didn't take it that the thing was destroyed necessarily because there's nothing to destroy it's like a seat with a propeller a, like it's not like a like a hot air balloon where you just shoot through the balloon and you'd be irrevocably fucked but i just took it that like any any blast from a gun could take this thing off kilter and crash it but he could he could get airborne again just by like tugging on the generator or whatever like starting it like a lawnmower or whatever I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, yeah i just thought it looked like it was just completely obliterated like it seemed like there's smoke rolling out of it and the engine's on fire but anyways so that's those are all my questions do you have any other questions no i do not okay there has been too much violence too much pain none here without seeing but I have an honorable compromise. Just walk away. Give you a pump. The oil. The gasoline. And the whole compound. And I spare you lives. Just walk away. I will give you safe passage in wasteland. Just walk away. And there will be an end to the horror. 
your answer. You have one full day to decide. So then we can move on to quotes, right? We're going to move into our awards, yeah. our awards, our awards and categories section here at the tippy tippy top, the tippy top. So many, so many good awards. They're, they're, they're the best awards. They're the best categories. Oh, oh my goodness. Yes, it is. <laughs> this is especially. Um, a lot of good quotes, but also leaning pretty heavily into the bad guy quotes with this one too. And a lot of it also is just kind of hard to understand. This is one of those movies where yeah, that's true. I tried to put the subtitles out and, and to only to find that uh, the method in which I was viewing it did not have subtitles. Yeah, but humongous, and I will accredit this to the fact that the actor that played humongous, uh, Kiel, whatever his name is, Kiel Nilsson or Larson, yeah. um, he's not Australian. He he's of Scandinavian descent, and if there's one thing that I can attest to meeting plenty of Scandinavian folks and being, uh, uh, having been in Scandinavia that they actually speak English better than we do. So, that makes sense. Yeah. so not only that, but also, as I've stated before, somehow, some way humongous seems to be an erudite cultured man. You can understand him pretty well throughout his speeches. And of course he has some of the best lines. Uh, of course, there is the, the ones that we had just talked about, where he's uh, trying to calm Wes down after his, his partner has been uh, been taken out by the boomerang. Be still my dog of war. I understand your pain. We've all lost someone we love, but we do it my way, which, you know, there's, there's a whole speech that he gives to the refinery. There's also the, there has been too much violence, too much pain, blah, 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 blah. Everybody knows this, but that was, you know, obviously at the top of my quotes. Um, in reference to the interceptor and, you know, being a kind of a car nerd, I, I love when he, uh, when Max makes it to the refinery and the mechanic says the last of the V8 interceptors, a piece of history. And, yeah. and then finally, um, cause I'm sure you have others, if they're not these, I, I want to keep it short. Um, we touched upon what the, uh, the one old man says uh, to try and give some indication of where they're off to. And it's just kind of this mythical nebulous sort of area that he uh, has picked up from a postcard. And he says, and he's talking to Max because Max is, he's uh, declining joining the, the, the party. Um, he says, you have to come, Sonny. This is where we're going. Paradise. 2,000 miles from here, fresh water, plenty of sunshine, and nothing to do but breed, which can... <laughs> yeah, but you know, the, the pamphlets, yeah. Yeah, re referring to what do these people do with their spare time? Well, they just kind of, they probably just, you know, yeah, putz around, think, and scavenge, and fuck. It's true. Because at that point, uh, too... There, there was your answer, yeah. Sure right. That. Well, and, and that is, that would be a priority um, in this sort of world is you need to reproduce to rebuild society so you know a lot of fucking that's probably happening because you're just bored so and you, it's it actually has a practical you know more so than now um into it where you just need to make more people so that's what i have i, I did have that lord humongous quote uh 
the one you already said. Um, but actually, my favorite exchange in the whole movie is between the mechanic, the mechanic assistant, and Papa Gallo. That mechanic's assistant is so fucking funny and adorable. I love that dude. Like yeah. the gap to the mechanic's assistant. So it's like the mechanic is like whispering a bunch of weird shit, and then the mechanic's assistant is just shouting it out to Papa Gallo. I love that entire exchange is is so like just irreverent and funny like he like rattles off a long list of things that's wrong with the big rig and then Papa Gallo's like well what does that mean and he's like yeah okay what, what does that mean and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he's like uh, he's like 24 hours and mechanics assistant's like <laughs> 24 hours like he says it like question and Papa Gallo's like they got 12 and he's like you've got 12 and he's like okay and he just, yeah. like, smiles <laughs> i'd love that whole exchange is is that's my favorite exchange of the whole movie and no. then that guy doesn't have any other lines it's weird no it's super good i love that too yeah we we both like of course like chuckled quite a bit and and charla even was like that's like my favorite part of the movie right there <laughs> that's such, it, it really is it's never endingly funny how pleased he is at the end of the exchange where he's like, you got 12, and that's, that's okay with the mechanic. He's like, <laughs> he's like, he just has that like big gap tooth smile. Like, he's such a lovable fucking dolt. I love it. I would say that that guy also is very Australian. That, that, yes. <laughs> yes. Why didn't the white, why didn't headband girl go with him at the end? I would have been so happy. That totally makes, yeah, that makes way more sense. Headband girl and gap tooth guy get together and just uh. makes some very sweet, adorable oh. australian children for to rebuild society with just yeah a couple of joeys out of her pouch that'd be great <laughs> <laughs> uh uh do you have any others because there's other ones too but no, those yeah. no 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 that's my favorite exchange Th- those are the those are the the hits for sure um remind me again body count does it happen now or does it happen later <laughs> no we do um uh, spot the day quotes we do dick miller paxton then directorial trifecta then body count is the top of wiki wormhole i need to update my outline because I, I forget every time i should um, send you an updated one yeah that's all right okay spot the dick um i sort of did um i don't know if you did but for me i would say the closest thing to a dick miller here would be bruce spence who plays the gyro operator because he's actually yeah, he ha- he's actually he's actually had a pretty long uh still to this day um existent career in film and he's been in, in a number of other um movies that have some sort of international reputation besides um the Mad Max uh franchise. He he was in Dark City and he was also in um one of the Lord of the Rings trilogy if not all of them. But yeah, yeah i didn't uh i actually was just gonna see what you came up with because i looked up various characters and uh i looked up wes i looked up uh lord humongous uh wes is wes is in commando oh yeah that's right that's pretty cool but uh i was gonna go with wes and then hear you out but um Oh, he's also in, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Wes is also in weird science and inner space. That's why that, I was going to pick him. That's right. I fuck. Yes. Cause he plays one Vern, of his name is Vernon Wells, right? Vernon Wells basically reprises his role as Wes in weird science as being one of yes. the, one of the, the, the troglodyte fucking e- evil bikers that gets summoned yeah. 
Yes, yeah, it really with, is a callback with Michael Berryman as their leader. I love that yeah, part. Yeah, <laughs> man. I, so I went with him for when when I saw Inner Space too. I don't know if you've seen Inner Space, but I oh yeah, love that movie. I love Inner Space. That could be a midnight flicks movie, but yeah, once I saw he was in in those in Commando, I was like, hey, this this will be appropriate. But I wanted to hear you out just in case I missed somebody. But I'll go with him. Yeah. No. Um, I uh, do. Would you want to do Inner Space though? It has Martin Short. I thought you hate Mar- you hate Martin Short. Yeah, I, that movie rules. I mean, yeah, he says it's it's. Oh, I love Martin Short. That's oh, <laughs> uh, but I would love to do. Yeah, I would totally do Inner Space. That fucking movie is so good. Um, yeah. So I I don't know. I, I I'm I'm on board with that as well. In fact, I would say for the next part, the Bill Paxson category, who we swap out with Bill Paxson, I put Vernon Wells. I feel like Bill Paxton oh. would be a, a, a good Wes. See, I put him as the, as the driver. See him being like a sniveling, a doofus idiot. Uh, like I could see him handcuffed and, and eat the fucking dog food with his handcuffs on, like sucking it out of the can after they're done with it. And just overall being, I, I think he'd be great gyro captain. No, I like that too. And I think for you, that would, that would be apt because then, you know, I think it would make him a more headband girl gets with Bill Paxton. Oh, right. Boy. That would make that situation more amenable to you and more, you make him more yeah, likable. I try to amend it with my, with the Bill Paxton category. Yeah. I'd swap him out with Bruce Spence. Fair enough. I see that. I, I like both those. Um, so yeah, as do I good on you. So wiki wormhole, right? <laughs> Uh, directorial trifecta. Fuck directorial trifecta. Um, well, I mean, I feel like this is an easy one. Obviously, for me, it would be the Mad Max trilogy, the the, the first three movies. Yeah. So I I went a little bit different. I did Mad Max two, which is in 1981. Uh, George Miller directed. So I don't know if you remember the Twilight Zone movie, but multiple like Joe Dante, multiple directors, yes. John Landis, all all collaborated to it, but. Um, George Miller did the 20,000, um, 20,000 feet, uh, one with John Lithgow, right. Which is uh, nightmare, great. Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he did that portion of twilight zone that came out uh, in 83 and then beyond Thunderdome came, comes out in 85. So 81, 83, 85, he does road warrior twilight zone movie and beyond Thunderdome. I, I use that as my trifecta. No, that's good. Um, and in fact, that aspect of the Twilight Zone movie for many people is considered the best, the best story. Um, I like all of them. That one's pretty good. I really like the one with the the kid that controls the whole family. But yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's good too. I mean, they're all. I mean, obviously, they're all adaptations of the show. I think there's one that's an original story. I can't remember. Who which one they do kick the can, which I fucking actually hate the original kick the can, but uh nightmare at 20,000 feet obviously had Shatner in it originally. And they replaced him with John Lithgow. And then the one you're talking about, I can't remember the name of, but that's definitely an original twilight zone episode as well. But yeah. Now wiki wormhole. Um, this is another movie where like, like with Waterworld, where you could just go on and on and on and on. There's all kinds of crazy things. So I had to keep it pretty limited. Um, but right off the top, I wanted to mention this because you want to do body count, by the way, um, I can do body count because I, oh, I, okay. I, I, I figured it out. So I'll, I'll do the body count real quick and then we'll do the trivia. Um, but this is what I discovered. I actually found somebody did a, uh, a YouTube uh, video um, on the body count of this movie. 
and they they broke it down this way. Um, there's 35 on-screen kills, uh, which adds to a little under a half a person killed per minute. So a lot of deaths. <laughs> That's good. But you say that so if we take Waterworld out of the occasion, um, our highest body count up to that up to this point would have been Ichi the Killer, which was 25. But apparently Waterworld has like uh, like I had a ton of Waterworld was 67. And actually the the bloated body count that I found for this one was as high as 58. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Which is still less than Waterworld. Okay, that's crazy. So I found 35, but okay, so anywhere between... I think there's 35 on-screen kills, and then this person was like, there's like a bunch of ancillary like uh, stuff that he also factored in. So it's hard to... It, with these movies where so much death is happening, it's almost impossible to... Like when cars are completely blown up and shit, it's like how many people were in those cars? Like who the fuck knows? Like <laughs> that sort of thing. Okay, well... A lot of people died, which, you know, was to be assumed. Um, Anyways, so I apparently dropped the bomb on Charlotte last night that I just thought was a given at this point. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm so excited to top off our trivia. Did you know? You and our listeners, Mel Gibson is not Australian. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. You didn't know. Okay. So you knew that Charlotte, when I told her, I was like, yeah, he's from New York. She was just like, she was beside herself. The look on her face (laughs) of disappointment. She's like, I, she's like, I refuse to believe this. I'm like, look it up. I pulled up his fucking, you know, his, his uh, IMDB profile. And and there it is born in like 1956. And Boot, boot Hill fucking cat Yeah. It says he was born in peace skill. <laughs> yeah. So peace there you go. Skill. For those of you yeah. that didn't know, um, if there's, you know, there's many things to be disappointed in Mel Gibson about. He did, he did live in Australia, it says. He moved there with his parents when he was 12. So, so there's that. I mean, there's no, it's not like it's completely false. Sure. He is. Yeah. And I knew that. I knew he had lived in Australia. Um, but to me, so to go into a little bit about like my feelings about Mel Gibson, uh, especially connected with this movie is in the eighties, like I thought this dude was like the shit. Like I loved Mel Gibson. He was like a fucking God, like an idol to me. And, you know, to be just systematically disappointed in him through the shit he's pulled, you know, and, and the things that he's done this kind of added to it where I'm just like, yeah, like sure. He lived there when he was 12, but that doesn't like, it's just to me, it shows how kind of like, he's like this weird kind of like lizard man, like Hollywood person where he just like adapted this personality just for like his own gain. Like there's no fucking reason why he should have an Australian affectation. Like you move there. Well, did, tw- he, did he move there when he was 12? And then did, did if, cause if you, if he moved there when he was 12 mm-hmm. and then just, he lived and and was raised there through adulthood. Then I could see, you know, yeah, right. I don't know. Well, I mean, as most people know, though, at this point, he doesn't have one. He's completely lost any sort of Australian affectation. Yeah. He, just, he just speaks like, you know, like he's from the U.S. So anyways, so I wanted to put that at the very top. Um, speaking of Mel Gibson and 
relating to this movie. Finally, he only has 16 lines of dialogue, two of them being I came for the gasoline or I came to get gasoline. Yeah. And, and notoriously Max in these movies doesn't say much of anything like Tom Hardy has like, God, I can't imagine Tom Hardy given that script. He's probably like one page worth of actual dialogue. Right. And I guess like that was a source of criticism for people with um, Fury Road is the fact that um, the Max character's dialogue is so lean. And I'm just like, but that's the whole point. Like he's he's just this drifter that doesn't have much to say. You know, he's he's a very what do you want him to fucking say? Yeah, He's a taciturn, you know, um, he's a taciturn. um, What's what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not downtrodden but yeah he's just like he he he's he it's like the 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 man with no name the good bad and the ugly fist full of dollars he's he's just a wanderer that he doesn't have much to say he's not he's not gonna comment on things let his actions speak for him his actions speak for him so i think and i think that's what's that's great and again talking about Waterworld, that's where kevin costner didn't didn't do so hot but like with mel gibson and tom hardy they were able to do a lot with a little um anyways so the dog our goodest doggo in this you know i both i i love him as well the, the blue he's healer a boy he's a very good boy that's a great dog but apparently so that dog he was he was rescued from being euthanized and um, oh yeah so he was adopted by the crew to use in this movie and he's a bit skittish and due to all the explosions and, and all those things going Dear on god yeah he uh he, he he got a little wound up and apparently at one point he shit in the interceptor <laughs> <laughs> i like that that's adorable yeah, he's still a, a good boy he's a good boy he was adopted by one of the stunt people so apparently this this movie had good stunt people not molesting petter ass shit bags but carrying <laughs> stunt people that <laughs> i trust australians <laughs> um one of the stunts on screen actually resulted in uh, an actual accident accident. And that was caught on screen. It's uh, one of the scenes where um, one of the motorcycle bandits um, they're going up a ramp and he is supposed to basically fly over a car. But what happened was his leg actually got caught and he's, he's upended ass overhead and um, it's shown on screen that like his leg actually gets broken. So they uh, just, they kept it in because it was tight. Because like, yeah, I mean, this sucks for this dude, but it's very realistic. So we're just going to keep it in there. Cool. cool. <laughs> I like uh, that. Um, and I already talked about. I'm also the- shocked that, le- that more people didn't die making any of these movies. The way these, these, the car, the car crashes are shot. That's crazy. Yeah, this is another movie where there was a high incidence of danger and the possibility of more, um, you know, more damage, mortal damage being done. But I think it's also another testament that George Miller actually is like probably a decent man. And, you know, even though he's like, yeah, this is dangerous. You know, he tried to make sure that people were, you know, kept relatively safe. Um, I already talked about the fact that Mel Gibson wasn't on any of the U.S. theatrical posters because nobody knew who the fuck he was. one thing that you would not gather given the landscape and I actually thought of think about this too, given the, some of the wardrobe choices in this movie um, that the, uh, <laughs> the location was actually very cold. So cold. In fact, that 
um, Vernon Wells, the actor that plays Wes, he got the nickname Barometer Butt from Mel Gibson because um, whenever his butt cheeks would turn purple, that was an indication <laughs> that they had to move into the the bus to to warm up. <laughs> was it just that the the desert? Because notoriously, obviously, the desert gets super cold at night. But it wasn't scorching in the middle of the day. Like it wasn't hot as shit. That, no, that's surprising. Apparently it was cold the whole time. And so much so that, so they picked this location because it's known for being, you know, particularly arid and dry and it had not rained there for four years. So they were like, this is perfect. Once they get there on location to start shooting it, it, it actually rained. So the, the shooting was put off by another of couple of weeks. So anyway, so yeah, it was very cold. Um, I talked about this a little bit. There is some, um, there is some speculation as to the role that the golden youth plays in relationship to Wes. Apparently what Miller had intended was he's not supposed to be his sexual partner, that he's actually his like son. He's adopted his adopted son. Wes is actually a caregiver to, Oh, well that really puts things in perspective. Yeah. So, but I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. But George Miller's like, whatever, if you want to think that they fucked then that's fine too. But that's not, that wasn't my intent. Yeah. Sorry, George, everyone's running around fucking assless chaps. It's kind of hard to, to ascertain if someone is father son relationship going on. Well, and again, if you want to, if you know anything about BDSM relationships and that sort of lifestyle too, it could be both. You know, if this is a BDSM relationship, it could be like, yeah, he's my son, but I also fuck him. So whatever. Okie dokie. So there's that. Um, The Black Interceptor, this is getting into some car nerdery. Is actually, it's a, uh, the model that it is, is a 1973 Ford Falcon XB GT Coupe. What a mouthful. And it was a, it was a model that was only, made and distributed in australia so cool you wouldn't even you wouldn't be able to get it even if you wanted to no that cool car was only australian so if you were american you would have had to buy it there and and have it transported to the u.s ton of money yeah um talking once again about how our man humongous is actually a literate cultured man that whole night torture scene where he is carrying on and and you know flexing and pointing and fist pumping into the air during that part he is reciting a poem by Goethe entitled Der Erlkönig Erlkönig uh which translates to the elfin king um and oh, I and I I was aware of this poem um because I'm I'm fucking up here so anybody that listens to this the 510 of you they would even know um, that poem was actually set to music or was the inspiration for a musical piece that I like that. I think Strauss uh, Ricard Strauss might have um, written. Um, so basically, yeah, it's a, it's an, it's an evil elf King. So he, he's reciting a poem. So again, weird. A, yeah. yeah I, I wouldn't have even known that. Also, uh, I didn't write this down, but this ties into this as well, given that Goethe is German and this is a German piece of literature that in the gun box that Humongous has for his rifle or not his rifle, sorry, his handgun, um, there is apparently there's a SS death's head, uh, a Nazi SS death's head 
really in in the interesting yeah inside the box so wow yeah um i was also wondering about this and and i'm glad i got this answered for me i was like trying to think about like well what kind of like movies uh might have preceded this that would have been a direct inspiration for these movies because there isn't a whole lot of like dystopian wasteland sort of uh cinema prior to this not as expansive i suppose you know there's some hints of it like you know with a lot of things that are groundbreaking you know they uh there there are instances of it that might have inspired it but then then that particular piece of art is the one that synthesizes all of it and catapults it further into into the collective consciousness um but george miller had cited that the inspiration for this was the movie a boy and his dog um and i don't know are you aware of this movie at all no i'm not at all so i i have not watched all of it but i did i I have watched parts of a boy and his dog i need to finish it actually so a boy and his dog is this dystopian era 70s movie that that uh featured a very very young don johnson Oh, and one okay. of his and one of his first movie roles, and it's based off of a story by Harlan Ellison, who, for you literate li- sci-fi literature nerds out there, you would appreciate that. Uh, I've actually never read the story of Boy and His Dog, but I have read some Harlan Ellison. So, anyways, essentially, a Boy and His Dog is a movie about a um, a, a a guy, a young man who has a a telepathic connection with his dog. So his dog actually speaks to him like a human but only like telepathically. How the hell is that the inspiration for this movie? <laughs> because it, t- it takes place in like this post-apocalyptic dystopian. I guess that's gar- true. I would gar- thought garbage like, world was influenced by like, like uh, bullet with, uh, uh, I don't know if you've seen bullet with Steve McQueen or yeah. like the original Italian job or like, um, the original Gone in sixty seconds, like in any of those, like kind of car chasey movies. Um, no, no, actually. So the primary influences that might have been there too, but the primary influences I know for this movie is this movie, the movie Shane, which is a western, and mm-hmm. and 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 Kurosawa. So, yeah, because Kurosawa basically influences everyone to do any anything. <laughs> Every director always <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, especially from this era. Back to him. Um, and then one last thing I have more ner- nerdy, techy things for um, people that care. Uh, the gun that Humongous use, uses is a Smith & Wesson Model 29. I was going to ask about the gun earlier because it it's so fucking powerful that yeah, I was like, what is this gun? It's so tight. Yeah, it's like an elephant gun. Um, but yeah, that's what it is. Nice. I'm so glad you, you touched upon that. Like I said, there's so there's tons and tons of this. Like there's like pages and pages of shit that you could like talk about. But I didn't do any research because I just wanted to sit back and, and hear all the shit you came up with. So that was great. And bask in the trivia glory that I that I presented to you. It was great. I fucking loved every second of it. Okay. Um so that all being said, it's time to assign a rating for this movie. Uh first off. Would you say, Pat, is this a midnight movie? I, in terms of where it lands on the clock of being a midnight movie, I said 10 p.m. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's right around that mark, too, because not quite a midnight movie, but a late night movie. It is a violent movie for sure. Um, 
I just think we've some we've come a, a long way as to permissible violence that it, it def, definitely it isn't one of those movies that's like damn it's still even violent for today's standards it's it's definitely you know by today's standards uh, that I could see this being on television at at ten for sure right and there's not like a lot of like there's not like trans a lot of transgressiveness to it like say with like Ichi the Killer or even so more so when we were talking about Cape Fear where there's that suggestive there's transgressiveness some sexual violence like uh, she gets uh, early on um, when the Northern Tribe well what becomes the Northern Tribe some of their members get taken and the the girl gets her shirt ripped off and, and yes uh, all that and it's implied I assume that they had raped her but yeah. Yeah, so I would say it's 10 or even maybe 11. Um, so we need to assign an icon for this to give it a, 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 a what out of five. What would you say? What, what was your choice of iconography symbol to we, use? We don't ever discuss this beforehand, but we always seem to land on the same thing, or at least commonly. I mean, I just said assless leather chaps. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um I I honestly didn't really think about it. I was gonna just say interceptors. So uh, out of five interceptors, oh. or let's let's do good boys. Out of there we go. We do like to pick animals a lot, so that's good. Out of five blue healer good boys, what would you? Uh, <laughs> what would what would you give this movie, Pat? I am. I'm gonna give it a four and a half. It really is close to being a five, and I. I guess I I don't really even have good reasoning as to not assign it a perfect rating other than perfect rating. When I give away perfect ratings for movies, it's a gut feeling that I have that it's a, it is a perfect movie in my mind that I could endlessly watch and I could endlessly watch this, but I just don't get that, that gut feeling that I get for perfect movies to bring it up to a five. So I'll say four and a half. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I'm just going to give it a five too, because this is a pretty important movie to me. And just, a, yeah. And it's just an important movie culturally. Like I think it, this is three movies in a row. No, wait, no. Yes. No. Five to Waterworld. No, no, sorry. <laughs> Waterworld definitely got the worst rating so far from me. So get out of here. Yeah. I'm sorry. Again, I know this is going to be, this is going to be a, a sore spot between you and I that, you know, time is just going to have to heal. My friend, the rift has begun. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no we're only, we're only like 13 episodes. Uh Oh, this is unlucky 13. That's why it's, this is the end. Oh, That might be it. Yeah. I think it's 13. It might be 14. I don't know. Anyways. Okay. So I think that's it. I, uh, I'm going to hand it off to you then and ask, Pat, I'm very excited because I, I have no idea what you're going to send my way. But what are we going to watch next time? I have not. Uh, I had not thought about it previous to this. Um, I'm currently perusing my list that I have left. Um, and I might I might take a total curveball here. I'm not sure you've seen this movie, but it is a it is a father son movie that is very close to my heart because it's a, it's a movie that my, it's a definitely a dad movie. It is a the ultimate dad movie. And it's something that my dad showed me and it has several installments. Have you ever seen Billy Jack? I haven't. No. So the, great. The original Billy Jack. That's super. And I haven't seen it. So that's, so there's some cultural appropriation going on there, but outside of that, it is a fucking 
romper stomper of a good time and it has spawned several billy jack movies but i'm talking about the original the first billy jack movie it is a an amazing uh it's an amazing weird mishmash of of uh a martial arts movie meets an action movie meets like a western it's weird it's it's i think you'll dig it i mean it sounds sick yeah i i want to say it was 1970 let me just look it up i know it's the 70s 1971 i thought i was gonna say maybe or late 60s so 1971 I would be careful to use romper stomper and cultural appropriation. So glibly together, but <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So what you're trying to say, this is like a Nazi black exploitation Kung Fu movie. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to see what I'm talking about. There is a lot going on in this movie. Sick. It's one yeah. of those, it's one of those classic movies. Like when, um, what is the name of it? Paul Newman plays plays a Native American in a movie, and I I think it's called. Uh, I I don't I don't think I'll remember the name of it. No, can, I, I yeah I I kind of know what you're talking about. Like yeah, so this has that going on. It's like a white guy that's clearly like a white guy, but he's like I'm a Native American. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's just a th- that's the thing you got to accept for from movies that were basically made any time before now. <laughs> anytime it's before true. like two two the the late 2000s uh, you know it's like oh well yeah there's some white person playing a role that was would be perfectly suitable for the person of that race to actually play how about ombre that ombre is what i'm thinking of by the way oh. i'm sorry i, I oh, just yeah. figured it out. ombre is the one with paul newman but yeah this has got a little bit of uh weird misplaced <laughs> cultural shit with with a native american uh vibe but um overall it is a fucking good ass time fantastic i'm very excited because yeah that's a movie that honestly i wouldn't have even thought of you mentioning so that's again very you surprised me very well so good i'm stoked to talk about it that being said we're gonna wrap it up This has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music is brought to you by the band Ugly, Arizona band Ugly. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail.com. That's F-L-I-X. Or hit us up on Instagram at midnightflixpod. For co-host Patrick Mitchell, I am your host, Adam Walker, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Good day, mate. All right. Hey, crikey. Hey, oh. <laughs>